It's now time for Talkin' Boxing with Billy C. It began as a podcast, went live on the net, and transformed into a full-blown empire. It's the only daily boxing talk show on the planet, hosted by the only guy with the balls to do it. Many have stepped into the ring. Many have tried to take the belt. And one by one, they've fallen. Another victim of the undisputed heavyweight champion of Boxing Talk Radio. Talking Boxing with Billy C is on now. My style is impetuous, my defense is impregnable, and I'm just ferocious, I want your heart. Coming to you live from the Billy C. Studios in Lake George, New York. I'm Bill Calagero, and it's time for the Billy C. Show. Good morning, good day, good evening. Whatever you're listening, I hope you're doing all right. Today's show is being brought to us in part by Sal's Neighborhood Pizzeria, an Italian restaurant located on beautiful St. Simons Island in Georgia. Check out the website, www.salsneighborhoodpizzeria.com. Or give my man a call, 912-268-2328. 912-268-2328. Find out why I go all the way to St. Simons for an authentic Italian meal. Today's show is also being brought to us in part by my book, Tom Molino, From Bondage, The Baddest Man on a Planet, is available right now where all good books are sold. People. Pick up, a, pick up a copy while you're watching or listening to this show. It's easy. Just go to barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com. Find out why I'm so adamant about getting Tom Molino's story out there. It's a true story. The guy's been forgotten. Read the book. Find out why. Um, today I want to give a shout out to uh, a couple of uh, newer uh, affiliates in uh, Brunswick, Georgia. Uh, WGIG, and of course, uh, my man Russ on uh, WSMN 1590 in Nashua, uh, New Hampshire. Uh, Glad to be part of your uh, sports programming. Um, Coming up a little bit later on the show, Alex Perpali will be discussing this week's blast from the past. Uh, John L. Sullivan. Yeah, we'll be talking about John L. Sullivan, uh, the first linear uh, world heavyweight champion, at least in the what we call the modern uh, gloved era. So we'll be chatting about him. Boxing Hall of Famer, Larry Hazard, he's scheduled to join us. We'll be talking about the fights from last week and the anticipated heavyweight showdown uh, this week uh, between uh, Deontay Wilder and Luis Ortiz. And speaking of Deontay Wilder, I know, I've been hard on the guy. Uh, And the only reason is the fact that he pounds his chest and says he's the best. And his resume would not uh, indicate that. But this morning, as I was writing the show, I'm sitting here and I'm saying to myself, "Ah, Deontay Wilder, ah, pounding his chest. Who does he think he is? Oh, he's fought. Nobody's done anything like he, according to him, nobody's done anything like he's done in the heavyweight division, blah, 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 blah. And... I started thinking, and I happened to had uh, looked at the rankings, and I'm saying to myself, well, aside from Anthony Joshua, and aside from Luis Ortiz, 
And aside from Joseph Parker, and you could sprinkle in maybe Povetkin, who else is there for Deontay Wilder to fight? I mean, the, the rankings were absolutely a, a joke, considering there were several guys on these rankings that haven't even fought in, in more than several years. Specifically, uh, 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 we had, um, what's his name, uh, Fred Zaquendo. He hadn't fought in three years. Joining me right now from St. Simon's Island, who realizes he's going to be coming on live right now, is my man, Sal Rocky Senecola. Good morning, Sal. Good morning, Billy C. How you doing today, my friend? Oh, not too bad, brother. Not too bad. Uh, you know, I know your idol is uh, Deontay Wilder. I know you love the guy. but uh, I love uh, the guy. Th I think he's the real deal. I think he just needs to be showcased. I think he just needs to be challenged and rise to the occasion because I think he's got what it takes. He just has to find the right dance partner to bring it out. Well, that's funny you use that choice of words because, um, you know, when I look at the heavyweight division, now now let me, let me start off by saying this. You know, you go back, Mike Tyson. I mean, Mike Tyson seems to be the most popular name uh, when, uh, uh, when, when people talk to me about the sport of boxing. They'll say, oh, well, I used to be into this sport. You know, Mike Tyson, blah, blah, blah. Now, Mike Tyson was an exciting fighter. We all love to watch Mike Tyson, or at least I did. I loved to watch Mike Tyson fight because I knew that it was going to end in a knockout. And I didn't care if the fight lasted 10 rounds or 10 seconds. I, I didn't care. I was there to see Mike Tyson. The truth of the matter is, is that the division wasn't all that great during Mike Tyson's era. And you could follow that. You know, Mike Tyson was exciting. So the heavyweight division got, got attention. Evander Holyfield displayed more heart than most fighters will ever do during his fights. And the division was a little exciting. Lennox Lewis... And Riddick Bowe were two big guys with small guy talent. Hand speed, they can move, they could, you know, they changed the complexion of the heavyweight division. Um, but you got to go all the way back to Muhammad Ali uh, during that era when you had a chock full heavyweight division of talent. Ali, Frazier, Foreman, Ron, and then the other guys, Ron Lyle, you know, uh, Ernie Shavers. The Quarry Brothers, you know, the list goes on and on. Kenny Norton. I mean, you know, you look at the heavyweight division now, Sal, and it, here's some notes. I mean, Lucas Brown, who was stripped of the uh, WBA title because of uh, uh, PED use, he's ranked. Now, he, as, as far as I recall, he hasn't fought in quite a while. He's ranked number 13 in the uh, WBC and WBA, and he's ranked number 14 in the WBO. Freza Quendo is ranked number two in the world in the WBA, hasn't stepped inside of a ring for a real fight in three years. He's ranked number two. And by the way, WBA has BJ Flores ranked at number six. Um, Jarrell Miller, a guy who's, who's getting his opportunity. Baby. Uh, baby. <laughs> He's ranked number three, Sal, in the WBA, IBF, and WBO. I mean, when you consider that, uh, you know, and, and considering who, who he's fought or, or who he hasn't fought, how does he get a ranking that high? 
Well, you know, it's amazing, but you, we've often said, we cannot blame a fighter who stands out uh, during an era or time when maybe the division may not have uh, what we would like to see as far as challenging opponents uh, on a level that we use, you and I often use as a benchmark, the 70s and the 80s. And when you mentioned all the heavyweights that you did uh, earlier with Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, Kenny Norton, Ernie Shavers, uh, the Quarry brother, uh, uh, Jerry Quarry. Uh, I mean, any one of those guys today would be in contention, if not a world champion, a reigning world champion. And you, you look at back then, they were all challenging each other. There was what I call the round robin effect. They didn't care. They would fight each other. They would, they would hey, one guy fights this guy, the next day they're going to fight that guy. Yeah, but Sal, they, Sal, they like, had each other. They had, they had each other to fight. Right, so right. That's what I'm saying. We cannot blame, you know, same thing when Meraki Marciano was reigning champion. He had he had some great opponents and he had some less than stellar opponents. But the bottom line is, we can't blame a, a fighter for doing the best job he can for fighting the best in his division at that time. That's all and we can. That's all we can expect. That's all we can hope for. Expect from, yes from any fighter. In any yes. division, is in any to era. Is, right in any era, right to fight the guys that are available to them at that time. But when I look at Deontay, you know who else is there for him to fight? You know when well, I when I look at Deontay Wilder, the fights that I would like to have seen. I mean, there are some tough contenders out there. You know, Dillian White is is a name that that comes right to to the top. Uh, you know, when I say. For a guy like Deontay Wilder to pound his chest and say he's the best, well, he needs to have guys like Dillian White or Kubat Pulov on his resume. And, and then even Alexander Povetkin. You know, I don't want to hear about the PED or whatever. Uh, Povetkin, and, and Povetkin's way past his prime. Ever since Teddy Atlas took him over uh, for that uh, year or two, whatever, he ruined the kid. You know, so he had to re redo his whole, uh, his whole game. And, you know, now he's he, too, is pushing 40 if he's not 40 already. You know, but but there's a guy that would look good on Deontay Wilder's resume. Um, another one I've always said was Dominic Brazil. I, for some reason, they're not letting, uh, you know, him fight. They're not letting Wilder fight Brazil. I don't get it. Brazil is a, a tough guy, hard chin. He's He's slow. Uh, but he's he's better than I think people give him credit for. Then there's Andy Ruiz, a guy who feels he got robbed against Joseph Parker in Australia. There's a legitimate name, you know. And, and don't forget Bryant Jennings, you know. So when you look at uh, Deontay Wilder, the only guys, I mean, aside from from Anthony Joshua, Joseph Parker, um, and uh, uh, you know, if you want to sprinkle Povetkin in there. The only other names that really I would expect him to fight is guys like Brazil, Pulev, uh, Andy Ruiz, Bryant Jennings, uh, Dillian White, and and maybe even Tyson Fury when he gets uh, when he gets uh, you know back in, in in shape. You know the the truth of the matter is there are there really is no other fight 
for Deontay Wilder? Should he get by Ortiz? And by the way, Ortiz is is has to be considered a legitimate opponent for him, even oh, if yeah. he comes to lay down. Um, the truth of the matter is, is after the Ortiz fight, assuming Deontay wins it, Sal, really the only other fight for him that is going to be accepted would be the winner of Joseph Parker, Anthony Joshua. What do you think? I think you're right on, and I think that fight is going to happen. We are going to see if both of these heavyweights do what we expect them to do and win their fights, respective fights. I'm I'm saying Deontay Wilder and uh, Anthony Joshua. I truly believe, in my heart of hearts, we are going to see that fight before the end of this year. Maybe before the end of summer, but I definitely think before the end of this year, we're going to see Deontay Wilder and Anthony Joshua inside the squared circle, uh, and it's going to be what every fan of heavyweight boxing is going to want to see, and I think it's going to happen. Well, the only way it won't happen is if they keep uh, outpricing themselves, you know, which is uh, uh, a very good possibility. And, and speaking of heavyweights, Andy Ruiz, who I've been also critical of because, uh, you know, he's kind of a fat guy. Um, and really, I mean, you know, that's an understatement. It looks like is he a heavyweight? Uh, yeah, okay. he's a, he's a heavyweight. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a heavyweight, sweetheart. But uh, <laughs> he returns to the ring, and uh, he's been out for fifteen months. His last fight was that fight I was talking about uh, against uh, Joseph Parker back in December of twenty sixteen. He's stepping in the ring with Devin Vargas, who's got a record of twenty and four with only eight knockouts. Now, Devin Vargas is actually when he's tr- when he trains. Now, I know some inside scoop about Devin Vargas. You know, he doesn't really like to train. Um, you know, he's got a lot of responsibility with family and stuff like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, of late, he's been taking fights, you know, f- for the paycheck. But if this guy comes and trains, Devin Vargas against Andy Ruiz could be a uh, exciting fight, which is taking place on March 10th. But... Uh, Anyway, I got I got some updates on uh, Triple G and Canelo, Sal. Come on, um, really? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. I got, well, I'm I, looking forward to that fight. We're still waiting for May fifth, right? Oh yeah, we, set? yeah, yeah. They 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 need they need a little extra time to prepare, I guess. <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say, wait a minute. No. Who was who was doing the eighteen month training program? That was Billy Joe Saunders. Billy Joe Saunders. Billy okay, Joe Saunders well, look, it wanted. Paid off for him. He wanted eighteen it months to prepare. Yeah, he wanted eighteen months to prepare for Triple G. But uh, but uh, you know, all kidding aside, uh, Canelo, you know, he's taken uh, a year to, to to prepare as well. But uh, the big fight, of course, Cinco de Mayo, uh, which uh, for anybody that doesn't know, that's May fifth, um, is uh, going to be taking place in Las Vegas. Triple G undefeated, 37-0 with a draw, 33 knockouts. The only draw coming at the hands of um, Canelo Alvarez in his last fight, which many people, including myself, feel he won. Uh, Canelo, on the other hand, uh, once beaten by uh, Floyd Mayweather, 49-1 uh, and one with two draws, one being against Triple G and uh, the other earlier in his career. Um, they both had uh, some, uh, uh, some quick uh, comments. Uh, as we're probably going to be hearing from them between now and May. But uh, Canelo Alvarez said, uh, this fight I'm approaching it uh, as the 13th round. Uh, 
who said that the other day, right? But uh, I'm telling you, somebody's <laughs> listening to the program. I, I, I said, I said that's what I want to see it, it to start like the 13th round. No feeling out. Let's just get get it going. But he says, I'm I'm looking at it as the 13th round, a new fight. And if I was the bet, and that I'm the better fighter, um, he says, uh, we want a knockout to leave no doubt. We want uh, to win this fight convincingly. Uh, I felt comfortable in the first fight weighing in at 160, which I don't see why he wouldn't have. Uh, the fight prior to that, didn't he weigh 168? It was super middleweight. I think he came in at 166 or 164, something like that. Uh, he says, I'll be more comfortable at the weight in my second fight. So uh, it sounds like he doesn't want to make an excuse, but, but, but it's coming. Yeah. He says, I did yeah. hurt him with a right to the temple, but he never hurt me. Uh, we have uh, to risk more in this fight, meaning he needs to take more risks. I, I don't know if I recall uh, Triple G getting hurt uh, in that fight, but I do recall one time that uh, Canelo kind of got rocked. Uh, what, do you, what's your recollection? My recollection is just what you just said. I remember seeing Triple G land some uh, big shots, and uh, I thought Canelo was a little stunned or a little hurt. But then again, here's the but. I remember saying that I thought Triple G was giving Canelo too much respect early on and, and through the fight, and maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe he did get caught with a shot that he said, wow, this guy could punch. I don't know, but uh, it, hey, guess what? I go watch that fight 100 times. I still think that Triple G won the fight, but who's to say that he didn't uh, get caught with a shot to the temple or somewhere else that, that he said, hey— this guy could punch. I got to be a little more cautious. And that's it, because I thought he did fight a little bit more uh, conservatively and uh, didn't let his fist fly the way I thought he, he should have and could have. And hopefully this time he will. You know, Canelo, uh, Canelo's forever kind of joined at the hip with Floyd Mayweather. Um, you know, Floyd Mayweather fighting Canelo uh, when Canelo was in his prime. And um, I... Floyd? No, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. And, and Canelo, I think, learned... Some things, several things from the uh, Floyd fight. Some good, some bad. Uh, the the good things is, uh, you know, he learned how to, uh, you know, be a little more aggressive, try to cut the ring off. Uh, some of his uh, flaws he has not improved on. He also learned uh, to, you know, duck some of the big fighters and let them marinate uh, to get some more money. He learned that too. Uh, but uh, But he was asked if Canelo would be open or would he consider a crossover fight in MMA like Floyd is, uh, you know, allegedly discussing right now, which I don't think will ever happen because Floyd won't be able to dictate, uh, you know, his version of the rules, which would be a joke. Um, and I love the answer from Canelo. Canelo uh, uh, said, listen, I respect boxing. Boxing is my sport. That's what I love. The other sport, that's something we'll never know. As for Floyd, with him, you never know. But you know what? Whatever he does doesn't interest me at all. And you know what? I'm with you, Canelo. Because uh, the only thing I want to hear about Floyd Mayweather is that they lock him in a cell somewhere and he never gets out. Um, that That's it. Uh, or, or, on a positive note... Uh, I wish that Floyd would focus on his promotional company and maybe help some young fighters because I think he could. Triple G so. on the other what's that? Can I can I add one thing? Do you you know what I really believe 
in my heart of hearts that also Canelo Alvarez learned through that uh, Floyd Mayweather fight. What's that? Psychologically. I believe Canelo went in there with the mindset that, wow, I'm fighting the man, the, you know, the, the, the guy. And in Canelo's young years, that you know, because it was several years ago, and a fighter's maturity mentally uh, also has to coincide with his physical strength and ability uh, to to improve and grow. I think that was a psychologically growing fight for Canelo Alvarez because I think he went to that ring saying, well, I'm finally fighting, and I use the lack of a better term, the man uh, himself uh, as as the A-side, if you will, for lack of a better definition. And he said, the hell with this crap. I am now the man, and everybody's got to fight me. That's the attitude change, and that's the mentality, and that's the mindset. That's what every fighter has a significant fight where they, they realize they're no longer just striving. They are now the, the man, and I think that was what the transition was at that point. You know, I I, I agree and disagree. I'll tell you yeah, why. I know. That's what I, I said. No, no, I'll I, I tell you <laughs> why. I'll tell you why. And, and and you know I know it was a long time ago, but try to remember what you were thinking when you were a young fighter, a, a young fighter. I, I want to emphasize yeah. young. Okay, thank um, you very much. And and, uh, <laughs> and you know you you have a, a sense of in, invincibility, Sal. And I think that that was um, Canelo's uh, attitude at that time. Canelo was a loose cannon in a in a respect in a sense because he wanted to prove he, he wanted to do what, what we want fighters to do he wanted to prove to everybody that he was the best and in order to do that he wanted to be, fight the guy who claimed he was the best and that was Floyd Mayweather the credit that we have to give to Floyd Mayweather is that Floyd Mayweather noticed the flaws in Canelo and knew that he'd better get in that ring with him now, then, at yeah. that point. Because, you know, I, he's going to get a little better. And as we oh, learned, yeah. Floyd, um, you know, definitely fought the way he wanted to in that fight. You know, a typical boring uh, run and, and steal a fight uh, style. But what Floyd saw and what I've seen and have said a hundred million times on this show... Canelo does not have the ability, like Floyd does, and, and a lot of great fighters had, to, to land effective punches while in motion, while on the move. And Canelo still, to this day, can't do it. And that's his biggest weakness. And um, it, it's, it's going to come into play again. That's why there's more pressure, in a sense, on Triple G in this fight. Because Triple G is going to have to eliminate uh, Canelo's movement. He's going to have to step up uh, his uh, ring generalship, and he's going to have to let the guns go. He's going to have to let those hands go and start off right out of the gate and not worry about uh, trying to wait strategically for Canelo to run out of gas, Sal. Well, you're right, and this is the whole thing. Like that's that's why I like to say that this fight's picking up in round 13. I mean, it'll be phenomenal. And and <clears throat> and all I was suggesting was, you know, there there's a point in one fighter's career, a defining fight, where they they have that transition uh, of a young mindset, uh, now becoming more of a grown, mature, uh, earned. 
I'm there kind of mindset. And I think that was part of the learning curve for Canelo during that Mayweather fight. Because Canelo fought, he, he didn't fight his fight. And we know, to Mayweather's credit, he just totally gave him a boxing lesson and uh, never gave uh, Canelo really any opportunity to sustain any level of aggression or any level of continuity to, to uh, 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 surmount an attack or, or, or be effective with his punches. But I think after that fight, emotionally, that's what I'm trying to say, that Canelo grew emotionally from that fight, and he learned a lot about his own uh, presence and heart. I think that was what I was just trying to say. But what you're saying here, yes, Canelo Alvarez, and Triple G, Triple G, as I pointed out, I think he gave Canelo too much respect because I, I didn't see Triple G being effective trying to cut off the ring with Canelo. He was sometimes following him to the ropes or doing what he had to do. And when he had him there, I didn't see Triple G being relentless like I would usually picture him being, letting one punch set up the other punch and, and, and putting the body in it, stepping aside, hitting him. I, I didn't see that kind of attack. And he had the opportunity which is why I said several times that I think he gave Canelo too much respect because Canelo may have caught him early and uh, maybe he was just thinking about that. I don't know. But I want to see round 13 start off, and I think it will. And I think at this stage of the game, too, when both dance partners know each other now, uh, I think they both feel they can oust the other one. And uh, I, I think Triple G is going to let some caution go to the wind because he's got nothing else to prove or learn. I mean, this might be his very last fight if he puts it all out there. We got to take a break. I'll be back uh, in two. We'll be right back. Check out BillyCBoxing.com now or feel the wrath of the mighty mustache. Oh, that hurts. Why are you doing that to my face? I hate you. I hate you. That's BillyCBoxing.com. Consider this your warning. Now back. Interact with the show at BillyCBoxing.com. And we're back. You're watching and listening to the Billy C Show. Glad you could be with us. And uh, uh, I'm here with my man, uh, Sal Rocky Senecola. And Sal, I haven't told you uh, Triple G's uh, comment yesterday. He said, uh, I'm really happy for this fight. The first fight was the first fight. The second fight is much bigger. I saw the fight twice. I have a plan now. I didn't feel much of his power, but I felt I won seven rounds. This fight is much bigger. I felt confident after the fight. 100%. I had my hand up. Of course I won that fight. Um, I like you know, that. Well. I gave him seven rounds too. I think, I <laughs> think, no. I think that his... Uh, smartest statement was the first fight was the first fight the second yeah. fight now is a bigger fight you got to put the first fight behind you you can't keep saying yeah. i won the first fight i think he won the first yeah. fight too uh, some people actually believe canelo won it but i, I believe that uh that that triple g won the fight but i also agree what you said just before we went to break triple g has to he he I, I disagree that you said you said he wasn't cutting the ring off. He was cutting the ring off, but he wasn't doing anything once he did. Once right. he got um Canelo, you know, trapped, so to speak, he let him get out. And yes. that's what he needs to do. He needs to get in there, cut the ring off, and then inflict some damage. The only way to slow down a fighter is to work the body, right, Sal? 
that does tremendous wonders to slowing down the body, number one. And number two, if Canelo's going to fight the fight he thinks he's, he's promoting and saying, they're not going to have to look for each other. They'll meet right in the middle of the ring. They'll stand toe-to-toe, and they'll slip some punches. They'll bang some bodies. And, and, and uh, I mean, if they do what they're supposed to do or going to say that they're going to do. But, yeah, you, you know what? The body, you being a body puncher. And, you know, there have been so many cases of so many wonderful fights that started off with a body attack. And ultimately, I mean, Rocky Marciano was was one of the kingpins with that. Uh, You know, you bang the body, the the hands come down, uh, it slows you up, it it, it can just, uh, just by the thought of you getting hit. You sometimes puts a fighter on defensive. Oh, geez, well he's gonna come. I gotta put my elbows down. I gotta do this. I gotta do that. You don't know, and that's what's gonna happen. And that that's what I thought was gonna happen with the first attack that I saw Canelo uh, try to sustain and move around when when uh, Triple G was coming at him. I thought Triple G would follow up, hit him relentlessly while Canelo was on the ropes in the body, and he did not do that. And so, I don't know. To Canelo's uh, 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 defense, maybe because Canelo was offering a little bit more on the inside than what we saw at the at the camera angle. I don't know, but uh, I think this time Triple G, if he's got a, if he's going to be effective cutting off the ring, and he's going to have Canelo at any time on those ropes again, you better believe that this time Canelo will be having to defend a lot of a lot of hard body shots because I think that's going to be Triple G's uh, offense in his game. I think Triple G needs just everything. Throw punches. Yeah, he does. He but, does. He's got to let the hands fly. He's got to let the hands fly. A lot of us. One punch sets up the next punch. He's got to do the combinations. That's another thing. We didn't see too many combinations. But I think right now, I think the second fight's going to rise to the level of what we anticipate the first fight being. I'm telling you right now. Unfortunately, it should have happened in the first fight. Um, Errol Sp- a lot of us think Errol Spence Jr. is uh, the future of the welterweight division. Great and, um, you know, Errol Spence Jr. seems to say all the things that we want to hear from a fighter. Great I want, fighter. I yep. want Thurman. I want Garcia. I want, you know, uh, uh, Terrence Crawford. You know, he wants all of the top fighters. But unfortunately, the way the politics work in the sport of boxing, and because he has to maintain a belt in order to get in the discussion because of the networks and the promoters, et cetera, et cetera, um, his belt, which is, uh, by the way, traveled to England to beat none other than Kell Brook for, which is no uh, easy task. No, um, I give him a lot of credit. He, the IBF has uh, ordered him to fight Carlos Ocampo, which is a fight that none of us really care about. No disrespect to Ocampo, but Ocampo at 22 and 0 and 13 knockouts is is a notch above considered a prospect. As a matter of fact, I consider him a prospect. He's never faced a top opponent. Never. Not even a t- even even with the bogus rankings by today's standards. He hasn't even faced the top ten guy in any ranking. You know, so I, and this is a mandatory for Errol Spence. So, you know, the sad part of this is that we gotta watch this fight. Then we'll see another one of those other guys fighting another one of their mandatories, and it keeps putting the fights that we want further and further out of reach. At some point in time, a fighter gets to a, a, a value level where they don't need no stinking belt. Floyd Mayweather got to it. Manny Pacquiao got to it, you know, uh, to name, uh, you know, two in, in recent times. You know, maybe even Terrence Crawford. You know, maybe even Anthony Joshua if, you know, he wanted to fight 
uh, Deontay Wilder and the WBC and, and the powers that be for Anthony Joshua said, oh, no, you guys are supposed to fight. And both of those guys say, forget about your stupid belts. We're fighting each other. You know, fighters do get to a point where they don't need the belt and the belt wants to stay with them because it gives them credibility. Errol Spence, I think, is one fight away from that. Unfortunately, he's got to fight El Campo. It's taking place uh, June 16th, which is smack in the middle of the year. So don't anticipate. I'm not anticipating seeing Errol Spence fight doing a unification fight uh, this year, Sal. And it's disheartening to be honest with you. Well, yeah, it is, and I would love to f- see Errol Spence fight Keith Thurman by the end of the year. It, could it happen? Maybe. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. But you know, with El Campo or whatever, you know, it, it's this is the minutia. This is the game of boxing. You know, you have a prospect as you would. would no doubt, who is a contender with the El Campo, and you know they give him. Uh, uh, he earned his little undefeated record against whatever opposition he may have fought, but this is where the rubber meets the road. When he has to step up, he's either going to step up into the ring with Errol Spence, and he's either going to be fodder to sustain another level for Errol Spence to continue as a reigning champion, or he's going to rise to the occasion and say, "Hey." This is my moment to shine. Let me show the world I've arrived. So that's what happens with these undefeated, no-name prospects that we see all of a sudden in the title shot. They have one or two outcomes, but it's the it's the minutia of the fight game. It's what happens. Um, and it sucks. Uh, listen, we got a lot of emails, so I will try to read them. And if not, they'll you know uh, flow over to tomorrow. So if you, if you have an email that you sent, uh, you know uh, the last day. Uh, don't worry, I, I got them all, and uh, I'll be reading them. Uh, just before I take a break, th- there's two things I wanted to uh, to, to mention real quick. Number one, um, it was reported the other day that uh, WBA Super Middleweight Champion George Groves um, had to uh, undergo a, uh, uh, a, a minor surgery uh, that was associated with his dislocated shoulder that he suffered uh, in the Chris Eubank Jr. fight. Um as a result, he's trying to get the um, uh, fight, the World Boxing Super Series final, which is scheduled against uh, uh, Smith. Uh, you know, to have that uh, to have that fight uh, postponed a little bit. Um, you know, Callum Smith and his camp has agreed to it. It's going to be interesting to see what happens here. This is the final, Sal. And all they're asking for is a w- one-month pushback. Uh, he's scheduled to fight in June, and they want to push it back one month. Because it's the final, I'm curious to see if they're going to uh, make this uh, uh, consolation because it has set up to be the fight that everyone wants to see, George Grove uh, against Callum Smith. Uh, what's your thoughts real quick on the fact that their rules are their rules but in this case, because it's the final, do you think uh, Richard Schaefer and the World Boxing Super Series and all the investors and TV and everything that they're doing would be up for pushing it back a month in order to maintain that final matchup, which is uh, an anticipated fight? It's a good question. Great question. And that's, you know, that's the conflict with, with putting a, 
you know, a, a fighter in this scenario, in that tournament, and, and things to come. I mean, it's a perfect scenario, perfect storm. What do we do? A, a, a mandatory, or do we get to the the, the the unification or the title in the World Series, uh, Super Series? So, you know, it's it's going to play out, and uh, hopefully they can push it back a month or so, and and we could see what happens. But uh, I, I think it's I think it's a very interesting scenario. Um. Yeah, yeah. I we'll see. I, I hope they we'll do see. it. I hope they do it. One one I thing I, I, I really I, do. I I have a, a quick email. This is from my main man, uh, Mitch. Um, Mitch. And and Mitch, let me tell you something about Mitch. Mitch is a guy. First of all, you can get the phone number to uh, to any uh, any fighter, which is uh, pretty cool. And uh, the other thing is, um, he uh, he 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 has some pretty credible sources. And he sent me an email uh, right after our show the other day, actually uh, uh, Monday night. And he said, um, I got, hey, Billy C., I got an inside source that tells me Ortiz will be the at the lightest weight he's been at in over five years. He said, uh, this is the first time that I'm dealing with this guy, so we're going to have to wait until Friday to see. Interesting. Because if I said this a while ago, if Ortiz comes in shape and he really wants to fight, because let's face it, if they paid him, you know, a lot of people think he got paid some money to find a nice soft place to sleep. But if this guy was thinking clearly, he beats Deontay Wilder, he's in for a $10 million payday against uh, Anthony Joshua. So there is some financial reasons for him to, to take this fight seriously. So, you know, maybe uh, maybe a lot of us, including myself, are jumping the gun a little bit. But uh, uh, anyway, hey, listen, Sal, we're going to let you uh, use the bathroom and do what you gots to do. Take your time because we're going to get uh, uh, Hall of Famer Larry Hazard on the show with us right now. And then uh, after that, we're going to do our blast from the past. And then we're going to come back to you, read some emails, and uh, do some other stuff. How about that? You ready? I'll look forward to it, my friend. All right, you Sal. Take good care. I'll talk to you later. All right, my man. That's uh, Sal Rocky Senecola. I'm going to take a short break. When we come back, Larry Hazard scheduled to join us. Don't go nowhere. Billy C. will be right back. Hey, fight fans. Check out KOFantasyBoxing.com. KO Fantasy Boxing is boxing's only trademarked fantasy game. Check it out, www.kofantasyboxing.com. Select your own gym, your own fighters. Track them through a season that can last from three months to a year, depending upon which league you join. You got to check this out, man. www.kofantasyboxing.com. Join it today. Again, www.kofantasyboxing.com. And tell them Billy C sent you. The one, the only, Don King. Makes me feel good, Billy, to have you, the number one show in the country, talking boxing with Billy. So I invite each and every American that's listening to this great show to tune in. Because we want you to be there with Billy and me. Now back to talking Boxing with Billy C., the only radio host man enough to take a punch from Mike Tyson. Wait a minute, man. Hold, hold, hold on there. Jeremy, man, uh, I need you to take this one, all right? Wait, what? What? No way. I, I, I can't do this. Need I remind you I'm Billy C., damn it? Now put on that mustache and get in there. Hey, hey, look at me. I'm Billy C. <laughs> Crap. Oh. 
the undisputed heavyweight champion of Boxing Talk Radio. It's Talking Boxing with Billy C. Now back to Billy C. Interact with the show at BillyCBoxing.com. And we're back. You're watching and listening to the Billy C. Show. Glad you could be with us today. And uh, speaking of being with us today, joining me right now uh, is my man, uh, Larry Hazard. Good morning, Larry. Morning, Billy. How you doing, brother? Very good. Very good. 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 Good to hear. You know, that's what the sun does to people. You know, the sun comes out and you feel a little better. You know, I mean, uh, it's it's amazing how that works. But uh, a lot of of stuff to chat with you about. First and foremost, uh, the fights from this past weekend. Uh, Sor uh, uh, Rung uh, Visai, who I, I, I apologize to his family because uh, I know I can't pronounce this guy's name right, but uh, he, um, he squeaked by a, a fight with Juan uh, Estrada. And uh, I, I, to tell you the truth, um, I, I agreed with the fact that uh, uh, Sor Rung Visai won this fight. Uh, I know there was a lot of discussion, and, and uh, Juan... Uh, Francisco Estrada felt he won the fight. Uh, listening to the commentators, you, you couldn't get a, a, a real uh, good feel. But you, you had one judge scored it even at 114-114. One guy had it 115-113, which is close. And then the other had it 117-111. And to be honest with you, Larry, I kind of leaned more towards that score than the other two. And the reason... Quite simply, I think this guy, uh, Rungvisai, is a beast. I, I, I mean, it, it, to me, it looks like he's just learning how to fight. He doesn't seem to change his demeanor. He doesn't seem to get tired. He works the body like I haven't seen in years. I like this kid. What was your thoughts on that fight and the result? Well, well the rounds that he won, okay, I think that the the they were clear wins. There was no doubt. And once again, I'm back to my my old argument about about scoring um, and that being that the numbers are so really are really supposed to paint a graphic of what's taking place in the ring and that's how you separate the close uh, bouts from the uh, bouts that are not really that close and uh, I think it's uh, the fair way to do it that's why we have the 10 point must system and I think what it does, it once people get acclimated to judges doing that, I think they'll have a better understanding, and there will be less disagreement on some of these uh, decisions. I agree with you there. I think that the the rounds that he won were, were more more clearly won than the the other uh, rounds that he lost, perhaps, you know, which were close rounds. And I think that's what made the difference in our mindset. At least for me, it did. Yeah, you know, you make a great point because, you know, a close round, uh, one judge might see it one way, another judge might see it another, but they're making the fight too close because the right. other rounds that were that were a fighter is being battered in, it's not it's not showing up on the cards, you know, uh, you know. So at the end, when you do all the the, the calculations, you end up with these scores that are that are close, and then once you get one guy that has uh, 114, right. 114, another guy has 171, next thing you know, ah, it was Rob, that was this, it was that, you know, and 
And, you know, yeah. it's like I always say, I don't want to make an excuse, but, oh, God, here comes the excuse, you know. And, uh, you know, fighters are using this as to their advantage. Like, because Juan Francisco Estrada, don't get me wrong, I love this kid. I, I You know, this this guy is, has stepped up and fought the best that he could in, this, in these weight classes. Uh, he said after hearing the scores, I felt I won. I boxed and attacked and won the last three rounds. I don't know what the judges saw. I want a rematch. The first thing that came to my mind, Larry, was what about the first nine? You can't you can't right. win the last three and then right. and then say what were the judges watching, right? That's right. That's right. And of course, you know, people uh people remember what they see last, you know. That's fresh in their minds. But you you make an absolutely great point there. You know, these guys start talking about what they did at the end of the fight, but what about the beginning of the fight? You know, and that's and that's that's the uh, whole thing. And I think that, you know, at, at some point, if judges were just able to grasp the concept, I've been I've been pushing judges in New Jersey. Hey, look, let's break out of the gate, man. Let's break out of the crowd, and we'll live with. The, probably some criticism in the uh, beginning, especially in some of the big fights that are nationally televised because, you know, you got these commentators. Right, it's the who, commentators. Who, who think, the, the, yeah, who the commentators. Think judges, they think they're judges, they think they're referees, they think that they're everything uh, in the sport, and they're really nothing but commentators, if that's what they, you know, uh, what they are. And they condition the fans looking at the fight, and, 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 and um, justifiably so, most fans really don't understand the intricacies of judging and the application of uh, how you apply the various concepts round by round. But if they can just stress the one simple point is that a judge has 10 points to paint a picture when most of the judges are trying to paint a portrait with maybe two or three points, and it's coming out ugly in many instances, and it's not good. So, you know, I agree with you 100%. You're right on with what you're saying. You know, the funny, you know. The funny thing is, is first and foremost, the, most of the commentators and most of the fans don't judge fights or score fights correctly. They follow the... Which guy would I rather be at the end of the round philosophy that Max Kellerman likes to point out in every single yeah, fight that yeah. he watches? Um, and, and, you know, a lot of times um, that isn't indicative of what actually happened in the round. But neither here nor there, you know, when you add that with, uh, where, you know, the fan is, is forcing themselves to score 10-9 for a guy they thought to win, and then deduct a point if there's a knockdown, regardless. Yes. And then that guy automatically gets the 10-8 win, even though he was losing. Um, right. What, what's, what's happening, too, is that the judges are not taking advantage like you're suggesting. So maybe what, what has to be done is the new group of judges that are coming up, the young guys, try to yeah. get them on the right path without – letting them get taught by the guys who are doing it wrong. Like, like you know, Joe Cortez as a referee, to me, 
uh, was awful. You know, next thing you know, he's in the Hall of Fame. He's this, he's that. And what does he do? He's teaching referees in Vegas, you know, how to be a referee, just like Joe Cortez. You know, that's where you got to break out of the mold, Larry. You know, let's start with some new blood. Reboot, so to speak, you know? Well, that's true. That's true. And I also think that, um, you know, people look to the head. People look to the leader. So I think that it, it's, it's fortunate I would say it's fortunate when you have a commission who has a, a leader, someone at the head, who has expertise in judging and refereeing because those are the two um, skills, for lack of a better term, that are on display from the administrative side of the event, the judges and the referee. That's what the fans uh, the, the, those are the individuals that the fans see. Those are the ones that are most most publicized. So it it would be a great service to a commission and to the sport when you have people running, people who are at the head that have expertise in all of those areas, and then they don't have to rely on retired uh, referees who perhaps weren't that great or retired judges who perhaps weren't that good and uh, who are so inclined to do things the old way, they themselves will have to step up now and become the instructors, give seminars, teach the new generation, as you say. Teach them the new way. Break them out of that mold. And um, I think we'll begin to see the change. But what happens is that um, many of the commission heads, they really don't know that much about these uh, mechanics, judges, judging and refereeing, and so they have to rely on the old-timers, old and uh, oftentimes many of them are reluctant to even challenge the people that they assign to the jobs. You know, you we see referees make mistakes and, you know, um, making the event all about themselves. We see judges who constantly... Uh, score fights uh, incorrectly, uh, for lack of a better term. And before you know it, two or three more big fights down the road, there they go again. You see the same old judges over and over and over all around the country. You know, you got judges from New York. You got judges from Connecticut, judges from California. They are all over the country doing all of the major fights. The same judges over and over and over and in my opinion there's no there's no such thing as a great judge there's no such thing because judging is subjective it does not require any physical um mechanics it's all mental and it's all opinionated and it's all interpretation how the individual is interpreting what they see and they got 10 numbers to paint that picture. And if the concept is not given to them properly, then we're going to see it over and over and over again. So you are very, very correct in that we need new blood and we need to pound these new concepts into the heads of the new bloods. That's the way I see it. Hey, you know, you just brought up an interesting point. You know, the the reason why, and, and this is just my opinion, the reason why we see the same 
judges, same referees all over the world doing these because they, they're in cahoots with some of the sanctioning bodies and the television networks like to have guys that they're familiar with. When I see uh, Reese, I used to think Jack Reese was one of the better referees, and then all of a sudden, it became about him. Yeah. It became, it, you know, and then he changed. You know, it, he took on the Steve Smoger persona. You know, yes. uh, where where you yes. watch Steve Smoger slap the hell out of his uh, the guy yes. he doesn't want to win. I, 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 you know, and he's kissing the other guy. You know, and it's like, what what's he doing? That's not appropriate. You know, but whatever. Let let me let me. Uh, I could go on about that forever, but. The fight yeah. between Diani Nietes and um, Juan Carlos uh, Revico uh, was a fantastic display, in my opinion, of a fighter that used the sweet science, Larry, um, yes. to break down his opponent and then went in for the kill. This but is something that right. you, you need to do. That, that when I see somebody and you get into this conversation about the sweet science a lot of younger people will throw floyd's version of the sweet science in my face and i'm always like well you know that's not the whole that's not the whole definition you know what floyd did worked for him and he was able to you know not get a lot of mileage on himself and never get hurt etc cetera, etc cetera. but that's not the definition of the sweet science the definition of the sweet science is like a lomachenko or whatever or like what we saw on Saturday with Donnie Nietes. This was a guy that that uh, Revico couldn't hit cleanly, uh, was uh, moving, and, and uh, talk about accuracy. This guy, this guy was pinpoint accurate with his punch. I never saw a guy throw as many accurate uppercuts from the distance he was throwing them than, Deontay, uh, than Donnie Nietes did, and then when it was time, went in for the kill. What was your thoughts on the fight? Oh, again, you're right on point. I mean, and, and who do you credit for that? I credited the guys in the corner. I credit his cornerman, giving him good instructions. You could see that he has a great deal of um, um, confidence in the people who are working uh, with him, his teacher, okay, because he's going out there doing exactly what they're instruct instructing him to do, Okay, and his basic mechanics were right on point. You know, he broke that up. He broke his opponent down. He took his time. He broke him down. You saw all of the basic skills that a skillful fighter employs. You know, on his way to victory. And hey, listen, this guy has promise of being one of the great ones if he keeps it up, because the way he did, I mean, he broke him down beautifully. And then he went in for the kill, as you say. And that's the way, you know, I like to see it done. Unless you, you know, if you, 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 like, you like a Sugar Ray Leonard or Roberto Duran or Tommy Hearn, some of the good ones, you get them hurt early, you never get them off. The, they never get off the hook uh, with those guys. Once they get, once they get uh, on the hook early, it's over. But other than that, you see that meticulous progression of breakdown. They break a fighter down with shots to the body, shots upstairs. You never see him loading up on one shot, going for the kill. Just a little bit here, a little bit there. And once they see those signs of the breakdown, they move in, man. And it's, and it's uh, you know, that's all she wrote. And that's what we saw in Nietes, you know. And uh, he, he was very skillful in the way he did it. And I think he has great promise 
on the way. Um, you know, the, the, the other thing that's a, a big advantage for fighters that, you know, systematically break their opponent down is they, in addition to physically breaking them down, they're mentally breaking them down too, Larry, because, you know, they have these fighters overthinking, you know, oh, Jesus, is another uppercut coming? Is he going to hit me in the body again? Is he going to start going right. to the head? Is right. he going to do this? Is he going to do that? And then they start thinking too much. And, right. you know, that, that's also uh, an aid in, in, in doing that. And you were 100% correct. The, those guys that, that were classic finishers, you know, you know, it's funny because Sugar Ray Leonard, I don't think gets and this. I know this is going to sound like a ridiculous statement, but I don't know if he gets the respect he really should, because he is a guy that was when he had you hurt lights out. You weren't you weren't surviving that round. And, and the thing the thing was about him is everybody has this. You know, when you talk about Sugar Ray Leonard, they, they immediately start. And most people, a, a boxer will pop into their head. You know, um, uh, you know, uh, no, uh, no one more recent to compare to than, than maybe a Mayweather. And I'm always like, you know, no, no, no. You, you got to stop that thought process because Sugar Ray Leonard did things that the his opponents weren't expecting. That's what made him so great. And and the best thing he ever did, regardless of you know what people thought thought of the outcome, was come out of retirement and go after the best top guy that was do- dominating a division he wasn't even in. And that's what he wanted to do to prove himself uh, as being something special. And really, throughout the history of the sport, that's what they all did, right? Well, that's what see, you see. It's all. It all starts with the mindset. The mindset of the fighter. Sugar Ray Leonard. All of the great ones that come out of retirement, whether whether they are successful coming out. See, see, whether they are successful isn't the point here. The point here that we're trying to make is is that a guy like Sugar Ray Leonard, in his head, nobody could not nobody could tell him that he was not the best. He believed that he was the best, and he knew that to the way, like all of the other great ones, they knew to, the way to prove that you're the best is to call out the best. Okay, they weren't bullshitting around, you know, calling themselves the best, the best ever, this, that, and the other. You understand? And then gonna come out of retirement and get some little, uh, some little uh, guy that everybody knows that he's gonna win. No, the, when they came back, you go look at boxing history. When they all came back, they call out the top man that was there in the division. Okay. All of them didn't, you know, come back and win. But they came back and they fought the best because in their minds, they and, of course, their history um, has proven at that point that they were the best and they felt that way. And they weren't, you know, they were for real about it. And that's why you take Sugar Ray Leonard, okay, he sat there all that time that he was commentating and, you know, outside of boxing, he was analyzing the best fighter in the division, and that fighter happened to be Marvin Hagler. And he's sitting there analyzing him because Sugar Ray Leonard had a, a perfect boxing mind also. You see, and, and I agree with you 100%. Yes, he's my favorite fighter, okay, but for a good reason because he had it all. 
Sugar Ray Leonard, in my opinion, had everything that a fighter had. He had that he had that fighter's demeanor. You know, I you talking about the baby face assassin. That's what he was. He was an assassin in the ring. Always smiling, nice guy outside. Okay, but you didn't see him ever cower in any fight. And the way he came back against uh, Tommy Hearns in the first fight, the way he always, the way he came back uh, against Roberto Duran, that's a real fighter. That's the sweet science. You saw the sweet science every time Sugar Ray Leonard stepped in the ring, because he felt in his mind that he was the best fighter alive, and he fought that way. And when he decided to come out of retirement, he called out the best, and that was Marvin Hagler, and he beat him. Uh- you know, and, and the other thing, nobody can ever argue in Sugar Ray Leonard's case that the guy didn't back up what he said. And he wasn't a smack talker, but I mean, well, he, I mean, he got a little crazy, but he backed up what he said. But the thing is, is how many times did he show that he had heart? I mean, you know, you could listen, I could sit here and, and, and question some of these uh, fighters that, you know, say, I have heart, I proved I did this, I, I what, you know, even Floyd, when did Floyd ever prove that he actually does possess heart? We know that he stays in good shape and that he's been a, a pro his whole life and all those things that we give him credit for, but truthfully, he never did have to prove he was, he, he had heart. We, we never saw him lift his butt up off the canvas or come back from a serious cut or, or down on the cards and have to, you know, perform uh, uh, great at the, in the last couple of rounds. You know, we never saw it. We just listened to him, you know, and uh, it is what it is. But um, speaking of uh, fighters pounded on their chest, Deontay Wilder fights this weekend. And, um, yeah. you know, I've been very critical of Deontay Wilder. Uh, and I think that the reason why, and, and if you follow my, my history, even when I was just a kid and a fan, I, I never liked fighters that demanded respect from the media and everybody watching. I, I always felt, and, and it's a good segue because Sugar Ray Leonard got respect for, for what he did inside the ring. And one of my big hang-ups is Deontay Wilder's always saying, nobody's done this as good as me, I'm the best ever, blah, 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 blah. And I've been, well, he hasn't fought anybody. Look at his resume. And it's true. You look at his resume and, and there's nobody on it. But today I'm saying to myself, Larry, really, who is there for him to fight? I mean, aside from Anthony Joshua and the guy that he's fighting this weekend, um, there's only a couple of other fighters that I would even care to see him in. And that brings us back to the dance partners. You know, uh, what makes great eras great is having willing dance partners. And I think that, you know, putting money aside, which I know is hard to do, both camps, Wilder and Anthony Joshua, or, or for that matter, Ortiz and Joseph Parker, if one of those two guys come out victorious, they, gotta, they just got to forget about these belts, forget about all the BS, and fight. Because these, some of these other young fighters that we have uh, in the division aren't ready to fight these guys yet. There's really no other choice except those top four. What do you think? Well, you use two you use two terms that that are very interesting. When you say demand respect, well you use one term. I'm going to throw in the other term. You see, a fighter can't uh, like Deontay Wilder. He can't demand respect because respect is not demanded in a sport like boxing. You have to command command respect. And you do it 
by fighting everybody, but fighting the best. See what what a lot of what a lot of fighters, especially in the heavyweight division, if Deontay Wilder, you know, if he did a personality makeover, I don't mean that he's a nasty guy or anything like that, but his approach has to be a little bit more like Anthony Joshua, you know, instead of pounding your chest and you know demanding which you're never going to get that way. You get it by fighting everybody. Go fight Joshua and beat Joshua. Okay? Now you have commanded the attention of the boxing world because you went right to the best fighter and you beat him. Now, everybody else that's there in the heavyweight division, okay, the fans will really be coming to see you because you are now commanding the respect of the fans. So a lot of that uh, has to do with not so much with who you're fighting, but the mere fact that it's you who is fighting because the fans want to see you as much as they want to see the other fighter. Why? Because you've beaten the best, and now you're fighting everyone else. You see, because you become the center of attention then, because you've beaten the top guy. And so that's what I think Deontay has to do. First off, Deontay hasn't had a signature fight yet, in my opinion. Not, you know, Stavano, to me, was not really a signature fight for him. You know, um, he has to, this, this fight coming up Saturday, I think, if he wins it in the right way, I think that he will then begin to command not demand, but command a greater level of respect. And then go to Joshua. If he beats Joshua, then no one cannot say that he's not that he's not the best. You're right. That's the way I feel. You're, you're, it's pretty simple, um, you know. And and the thing is, is if he blows out Ortiz in one or two rounds, he's not. That's not the way he need, he needs to. He needs to have a back and forth fight, just like Anthony Joshua had with Klitschko. So that we can see, oh, does he get up? Does he do this? Does he? He needs to to re, to to somehow connect with the fans. And one last thing, I, I got to take a break, but you know, I, I, I'm just as crit, I'm more critical of Deontay than most. But you know, in his defense, I think he made a mistake uh, signing with uh, uh, Lou DiBella. Lou, Lou DiBella doesn't really promote his fighters, and I think. Deontay has almost been forced to try to promote himself. It's sad to see that the Barclays Center is not even sold out yet. Uh, he calls that his second home. And I guarantee you, Anthony Joshua fights there in the summer against me or you, and it's going to be sold out in, in a very quick amount of time. So I think that speaks to volumes. Uh, these fighters that do have talent need to make the right choice with promoter. And, and I don't have anything against Lou personally, but uh, but uh, this guy Eddie Hearn and some of these other promoters, they, they invest in their fighters. Lou doesn't seem to do that. Well, you make a very good point. You make a very good point. You know, that Barclays Center should be sold out already for a heavyweight championship. It should be sold out. Should you be. make a very good there, point. There shouldn't be a seat left. And, and like we keep saying, I mean, truthfully, it's it's a good matchup. You know? And if Ortiz comes in shape, we're going to really see uh, Wilder uh, tested. So.
And, be a good fight. and you know what, Larry? We'll get to talk about that next week and the return of Kovalev and Yuzel Guy and Dorella fighting. So we've got a lot of fights to talk about next week, brother. Yes. Okay, Billy. All right. Okay. You have a great weekend. Okay. That's uh, Boxing Hall of Famer Larry Hazard giving us his thoughts. I'm going to take a short break. When I come back, uh, we're going to have Alex Perpali join us. And we'll be doing this week's Blast from the Past. John L. Sullivan, as per request, don't go nowhere. Billy C. will be right back. Part of the Billy C. Boxing Network. Check out BillyCBoxing.com now. Or feel the wrath of the mighty mustache. Oh, that hurts. Why are you doing that to my face? I hate you. I hate you. That's BillyCBoxing.com. Consider this your warning. Now back to talking Boxing with Billy C. He may not have an excellence in broadcasting award, but the night's still young. And he's got martinis. So you never know what may be by morning. By morning. It's talking Boxing with Billy C. Talking Boxing with Billy C. Now back to Billy, Billy C. C. Interact with the show at BillyCBoxing.com. And we're back. You're watching and listening to the Billy C Show. Glad you could be with us. Yeah, uh, it's that time again. You know, we uh, we're in our fifteenth year with this show. Can't believe it. Time flies. And uh, during that time, our uh, longest running segment, and I think one of our favorite segments, uh, not only from us with this show, but also with you guys, the viewers and listeners, has been the blast from the past. And the last year, at least, we've been doing uh, strictly. Uh, Requests, and we got a nice long list of uh, requests. And today's uh, blast from the past, which is being sponsored by KOFantasyBoxing.com. Check it out: www.kofantasyboxing.com. And title bout, the title bout championship computer game, the same game uh, that my man Alex Perpali uses to uh, uh, simulate uh, these uh, blast from the past fighters against modern champions, the current champions, I should say. Uh, download yourself a copy now. Just visit our website, billycboxing.com, and click on the title about uh, championship computer game. This week's Blast, uh, another request, of course, uh, features former world heavyweight champion and boxing hall of famer John L. Sullivan. And joining us right now to tell us all about the big man from Boston is my man Alex Perpali. Good morning, Alex. <laughs> Good morning, Billy C. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, like I was saying to Larry, I'm just glad I see the sun. I'm glad I see the sun. You know, yeah, it's, it's nice, uh, starting day. to warm starting to warm up. But, you know, the, it's kind of a bittersweet thing. Today is the last day of the month. And, you know, at the end of next month, which is going to fly by, the first quarter of 2018 would already have been gone. Tell me that the time isn't, like, just flying by. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It... Um... Time waits for no man exactly. or woman, e even even or uh, anything the, in between. No, even even the meanest uh, uh, guy uh, in uh, in the house uh, didn't wait for John L. Either. Tell us about this guy. That's right, John L. Sullivan. Yeah, this guy um, is probably uh, one of the major reasons why the heavyweight championship is looked at as uh, a sort of a folkloric title as well as. Uh, an athletic title, uh, born October 15th, 1858, 
in Roxbury, Massachusetts. John Lawrence Sullivan, uh, the Boston strong boy. He was, uh, this was, you know, this was one of the, well, you know, you, you know that Tom Molino, of course, was a sooner story than this, but uh, this was a rags to riches to rags boxing story. Uh, this guy was like Paul Bunyan uh, in short pants, uh, to steal a phrase from uh, Phil Berger. Um, but yeah, all those legendary qualities that are attributed to the heavyweight championship. Uh, he coined that phrase, I could lick any son of a bitch in the house. Uh, he would bang on the bar uh, and make that announcement. And that at times there was a chance that you could, uh, if you went one round with him, you'd win $500. Of course, no one could do it. Um, even though he was he wasn't that big, he was a heavyweight. But for the age, this was before uh, everybody was drinking milk and uh, before things like Monsanto, uh, because he was only five foot ten and one hundred ninety pounds. Um, but at the time, that was a very large uh, human being, and he was very strong. Uh, his style was uh, atavistic is a good way to put it. But, um, as much as, I mean, that, you know, boxing is the sweet science. Uh, of course that has been an evolution and, um, Sullivan was more scientific than some of the brawlers of his age, but yeah, compared to like today's, uh, you know, say compared to like Lomachenko, uh, he'd look, he fought like a caveman. Um, but he was very strong. He had a hell of a punch. And, uh, you know, one of the things, Billy C., that's so funny when you read these old articles, just things they talk about uh, exercise and diet. Uh, I, there was no lentils or quinoa on his training table, but you could sure bet there was a big slab of mutton. I know. You know, it, you know, it would always get me off of him for a second. I, I always, what amazes me is when I was learning about um, – uh, the heavyweight uh, James Jeffries and what he used to do during his training was would limit himself to one quart of water during the day this is during all of it he thought that toughened you up you know we know now that he's lucky he didn't drop dead of uh, dehydration you know uh, uh, but uh, they just didn't know they didn't they didn't know you know no, but they uh, definitely did not John L. Yeah. Oh, go ahead I was gonna say John L. Sullivan you know um Yes, and, and I, I will say, uh, plug my guy, Tom Molino. He was really the first worldwide recognized sports guy. But John L. Sullivan is the one that gets a lot of credit for it. And he was also uh, a guy that, that merged two eras in boxing, you know, himself. You know, he was a champion in the bare-knuckle era and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, became uh, pretty much linearly the first uh, gloved era champion. And I think when you look at his resume, for some of the young uh, fans out there that like to look at everything in black and white, they're going to say, look at his record. Of his 30, uh, you know, he's had 41 fights, 38 wins, uh, a loss and a draw. Uh, 16 of those fights are against pro debuters. But pro debuters, as according to BoxRec, would have been a guy that had changed from a bare-knuckle era to a gloved era. So really, those statistics are skewed. I mean, for example, in 1883, which is early in his 
modern era career. He fought Charlie Mitchell, who was a top bare knuckle guy. I mean, Charlie Mitchell was, you got to go all the way uh, up until uh, Jack Burke in 1885, in my opinion, uh, where you would find John L. Sullivan fighting a guy as good as Charlie Mitchell was, Alex. Yeah, I think that's a good point. A uh, good way to look at them is that um, they're because the sport was in transition. They're not. Uh, they're by no means are they inexperienced uh, fighters. They're they're very experienced. They just don't have records uh, of them fighting with gloves because this the, some of the some of them it's the first time they're doing it. Um, that was the thing uh, about uh, Sullivan is. Um, he uh, gave credibility to the gloved era uh, and made the transition, you know, one that that worked. Uh, when you think about it, he, he was a puncher, so there was a natural inclination, I'm sure, for him. He probably liked the idea of gloves because, of course, the bones in the hand are a lot more likely to break than the bones in the face or the head. Uh, so gloves helped him. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, even the round system changed uh, because, you know, once you have the gloved era, you have the Marquis of Queensberry rules. I believe the bare knuckle era before that um, was, you know, a, a round was considered as soon as one guy was dropped. Um, and of course, that the whole rules of knockdowns are completely different in the Marquis of Queensberry rules. Exactly. And, um, you know, they also had... Uh, uh, a minute to recover in in the modern rules. They had thirty seconds uh, to recover, but but guys, you in the bare knuckle era, they used that as as a way. You know, they would the bell would ring and they would fall down and get another thirty seconds to to recover. So I mean, you know, if there's a will, there's a way to bend the rules a bit. You know, but uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting because John L. Sullivan once he switched to using gloves, he never went back. Some of the other fighters during his era did because they were still simultaneously running the two until it was exclusively uh, a marquee uh, uh, of Queensbury rules with the gloved era. So John L. Sullivan, like you said, and it was the perfect choice of words, he brought credibility uh, to what we call today as the uh, uh, modern era. Now, as far as his style, wasn't much to really talk about. I mean, he was a seek-and-destroy guy, uh, basically a barroom brawler. That's what... The, the sad truth is that's what John L. Sullivan was, Alex. Yeah, I mean, and that, and I think that that's that's one of the things about it that's in a way that's kind of cool. Those are the beginnings of our sport. Uh, this boxing is a sport of tough men. It's not a sport of wallflowers, uh, so it shouldn't be shocking that uh, the beginnings uh, come from something like this. Uh, from an early age, he was a guy who, you know, was a brawler. He started out as sort of a barroom brawler. Um, you know, imagine the toughest, boldest, maybe the nastiest guy at a college keg party uh, from your youth, and that's uh, that's the mold where at least you start you start with, and then as he starts learning more, uh, you know, fighting, and he uh, uh, his he was trained by uh, what was Muldoon was the guy's name, correct? I'm sorry, I I, I forgot to um, his trainer William in... William Muldoon, yeah, Muldoon, yeah. So uh, and then you know the other thing that we eventually he gets into you know like we said they didn't know a lot about nutrition or the perils of uh 
hard living on an athlete. And and he really was an athlete because uh, not only was did he have this proficiency for fighting, but um, he was also a, a baseball player. And uh, I guess the at the time it was the Cincinnati Red Stockings um, had uh, looked to sign him, but um, he didn't go for it. He you know went into boxing instead, fighting. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean. Like I said, that that was the thing about it is bo- boxing evolved. So by the time, just like you have the changing of the guard later, uh, the famous in 1910 when, when and we, we see it, we just saw it with Anthony Joshua and Klitschko. It's a tradition our, in our sport, especially in the heavyweight division, the man who beat the man. Uh, when Corbett uh, takes the title from uh, Sullivan, it is, it is very much a style shift because even though Sullivan's uh, brawling uh, uh, style was maybe a little more scientific than some of the other uh, cavemen of his day, Corbett's was that much more uh, scientific and much uh, more uh, uh, more versatile than his. And uh, so you have that changing of the guard, that tradition. Uh, and of course, that's where you get that, um, part of that is that saying of, uh, I shook the hand of the man who uh, shook the hand of the great John L. Sullivan. Right, John. I shook the hand of the hand of the, yeah, yeah. And when we got to do it with his great-grandson, I remember that. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, James Corbett, and by the way, that fight was a fight to the finish. So somebody was getting knocked out, and it went 21 rounds. 21 three-minute rounds with a one-minute break. But anyway, um, John, um, the uh, James Corbett and... Um, Gene Tunney, I, I believe, are probably historically two of the most underrated fighters of all time. Uh, uh, and, and they both, uh, you know, uh, dethroned guys that were considered uh, unbeatable. Uh, jumping back for a minute uh, with uh, William Mundoon, he was uh, uh, basically, uh, there's a lot of connections with John L. Sullivan that really molded our sport, and William Mundoon was one of them. This was a guy that tried to incorporate, at the time, um, uh, uh, training methods that were based on science, you know, based on things that that they could back up with nutrition and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the thing that, that, you know, you mentioned about John L. Sullivan, yeah, he was, he was born uh, and fought during an era where, uh, you know, he's eating uh, mutton and, and drinking beer. Um, <laughs> this guy wasn't just a beer drinker. This guy was a flaming uh, alcoholic, 100%. And although I think that that Bare Knuckle Hall of Fame up in uh, East, uh, you know what, in New York, which uh, it's called Belfast, New York, which I, I don't even think existed. I don't even know if they know they exist. But um, and, and it's kind of a cheesy uh, setup. But... Um, you know, I learned some stuff about how bad of an alcoholic John L. Sullivan was. <laughs> I mean, they cha- boys and girls, they chained him up in a horse stall to get him to, to dry out. I mean, this is how dangerous he was when he needed a drink. And they found, because this barn that they had found up there was basically untouched for 100 years, they found stashed bottles of booze up in the wall. He knew that he was going to get chained in there, and he used to hide booze. I mean, that's a guy with a drinking problem, Alex. 
Oh yeah, that's amazing. And he did. He, you know, he is a, a warning on the perils of alcohol because if you see uh, footage, you do see him as an old man uh, in the ring at uh, the James Jeffries uh, Jack Johnson fight, and you know he dies at fifty nine. So when you see him, he is not old in nineteen ten. At, but he looks, he's uh, overweight, He's just looks old and just beaten up by hard living. And you're right, I mean, you must be quite a um, an alcoholic if you need to be chained uh, during training camp like uh, Larry Talbot on the night of the full moon because um, <laughs> that is just, uh, it's pretty crazy. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing about him. He was sort of this sort of Paul Bunyan character. He was larger than life. Uh, and that set the tone for what the heavyweight champion meant. And to me, that's one of the reasons why I, I always, it bothers me today when people make such a big deal about pound for pound lists. And a lot of times they put heavyweights on there. To me, the whole point of the heavyweight champion is that they're in a class by themselves. They are close to like a Paul Bunyan, this folkloric quality. They are not, um, the pound for pound is something separate. Uh, because you can't compare to these guys, and and Sullivan was a perfect uh, John L. Sullivan was a perfect example. He at the time he was a symbol of America. He was uh, ambitious and confident uh, and racist. I mean, remember this is about uh, he's fighting. This is less than thirty years after the Civil War. Uh, Jim Crow law is the law of the land. Um, boxing itself was barely legal. Um, and mixed race bouts were illegal. And Sullivan, John L. Sullivan had, uh, you know, drew the color line. Uh, he had no intention of fighting a guy like George Godfrey, and not only uh, who was a, a top-ranked black fighter of the age. And, um, of course, when he retired, uh, Sullivan, you know, stated that, I really hope you don't give Peter Jackson, uh, who was another top uh, African uh, fighter of African descent, um, who uh, he Sullivan said, please, you know, bar him from the from a title shot. Uh, so it he was, you know, a symbol of the time, you know, because this 1890 America, uh, you know, this is the age of imperialism. I think we're right before uh, the Spanish-American War and uh, the U.S. annexing the Philippines. So uh, you know that idea of uh, this athlete uh, who transcended the sport. That's what the heavyweight champion was he made million dollar purses you know uh, or at least he made a million dollars rather in his whole career right, I, should, right. I should correct right, that I don't right. think he you made million dollar no. purses but no. he blew it uh, and at the end uh, supposedly he had $15 on him when he died at 59 of wait for it heart disease <laughs> yeah. you know it's uh, you're right when you look at the photos I, there was the ones that, that stick out I, I think the Jack Johnson wasn't it wasn't he in the ring with uh with with a Jack Johnson fight and he looked like he was a hundred years old yeah and, and yeah. he he looked like Santa Claus I mean he uh, did look like Santa you know Claus. and and the thing is and he had been on the wagon that was yeah. when he changed yeah, his he, life yeah of course you know a guy that goes to extremes it's not too shocking he went from a raging alcoholic to a teetotaler and you know preached about the perils of alcohol. And look what it did to him. It killed him if he would have yeah. stayed. Sta well, and it sounds like when you read, when I was reading this about John L. Sullivan dies suddenly at his farm in uh, in the East, 
Um, it sounded like he had some pains, passed out, uh, got up. One of the people that was with him, I guess he at the time he had uh, uh, was adopting like this eight, 15 year old boy who was there, William Kelly. Uh, he refused to go see a doctor. Uh, he got in a bath and uh, he died. Um, an interesting thing about his death, and I know you love this kind of stuff, but interesting thing about his death, and it can only happen to a guy like John L. Sullivan, who was bigger, like Alex said, bigger than life. Um, when he died uh, in February of 1918, um, you know, when they were doing his, uh, digging his grave, it was freezing. It was cold. The ground was so frozen it had to blast his <laughs> Blast wow. the hole to put the the uh, the casket in. I mean, only John L. Sullivan would have that happen to him. You know, I mean, oh, that's uh, great. Like yeah. even the earth had to be exploded in order to accept his uh, his body. That's pretty wild. Hey, before we put him uh, uh, in with some modern fighters, which I I don't think he's going to fare too well against. Uh, he uh, he was uh, married a few times, three to be exact, that were recorded. Uh, his first wife. Uh, 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 gave him a son, which I, I never realized that died uh, pretty quickly um, in uh, two years after he was born. Did he ever have any kids after that? You know, I didn't even I didn't even read about that. Um, that's sad. Yeah, to lose a child, that's horrible. Yeah, they named him John Jr. He was born. The kid was born in eighteen eighty four and died of diphtheria in eighteen eighty six. Uh, his first wife, who was a chorus girl, Annie Bates Bailey, uh, and he separated in 1885, um, but they were not legally divorced until 1908. And I guess they had to do that because uh, in February of 1908, uh, he got married again uh, to uh, <laughs> uh, Nellie Reveal, uh, who was also an actress. And um, they uh, had split up after he... Uh, Stop drinking, and um, I don't know if he was actually married. Uh, yes, he was. Uh, as a matter of fact, he got married to, to his third wife, Catherine Hawkins, uh, in 1910, uh, and um, they uh, they lived together until she passed away, and then of course, uh, you know, went in his passing. So, um, still a a big guy in the woman scene, I guess, you know. Yeah, and again, that's there's a tradition there, of course, with uh, comes these big uh, celebrity, um, you know, athletes with uh, lots of, uh, you know, harems of women. Uh, how did he fare uh, in uh, title bout? You know, he didn't do so poorly, uh, considering the massive uh, difference in size uh of the modern age of today's uh three-headed uh champion uh well we're gonna get that a uh, little bit at least two of them will fight this weekend it'll be a little shrank down which is always a nice thing um but uh you got uh you know i mean these guys are just so much larger than him it's ridiculous so first up was anthony joshua um when they fight the first time joshua wins uh scores a fifth round knockout stops uh john l sullivan at one minute and 52 seconds of the fifth john l uh did have aj down in the first uh and the third round was even when they fought a hundred times 
John L. Sullivan actually does get the better of him, but barely. 53 victories, 47 defeats. He stopped John, uh, Joshua 43 times. And of his 47 victories, AJ scored 20 KOs. Against Deontay Wilder, another guy who towers over them over him and is about 40 pounds heavier. Uh, the first time they fight, John L. Sullivan wins. Knockout in the fifth round, stops Deontay Wilder at 2 minutes and 21 seconds. There had been no knockdowns. Uh, it's a standing TKO. The referee stepped in between them. Uh, it was even up, up to that point, two rounds to two. When they fight 100 times... John L. Sullivan does get the better of Deontay Wilder. 60 victories, 40 defeats. He stops Wilder 56 times. Um, and in his 40 wins, Deontay Wilder stopped John L. Sullivan 23 times. And finally, against Luis King Kong Ortiz, the first time they fight. And I think the computer, the computer does look at, you know, they look at skill a lot in the, uh, it, it seems, in the computer. And you can't help it. Luis Ortiz, on paper, has the, the richest uh, boxing acumen of the three champions today. He, although that doesn't necessarily mean he's the best. Uh, but when, according to the computer, it is. Uh, the first time they fight, Ortiz defeats um, John L. Sullivan by unanimous decision. Uh, two scores of 119 to 104, one score of 118 to 105, all for Ortiz. Um, they, Ortiz scored a knockdown in the ninth round. When they fight 100 times, Ortiz actually gets the best of John L. Sullivan. Uh, Sullivan only wins 47 victories, loses 51. There's two draws, and he stops Ortiz 35 times. Uh, in his 51 victories, uh, King Kong Ortiz only scored 16 KOs. Interesting. Um, and, and I do, I, I can appreciate uh, the game, the computer given uh, Ortiz credit for his, you know, amateur background. So he obviously doesn't really have the pedigree as a pro. But what surprises me more, and, and this is an age-old uh, discussion, argument, whatever, that we've had on this show for, for more than a decade, Um you know, does a does a good big man beat the good small man? You know, Jack Dempsey, one of my favorites uh, all time. Mike Tyson, one of my favorites. Sonny Liston, even Muhammad Ali. You know, you look at these guys and then you stick them in with a man um, as big as the Anthony Joshuas or the or the Deontay Wilders um, with skill. Uh, now, Deontay Wilder is yet to be seen, but Anthony Joshua has displayed skill to go back a generation before with with Riddick Bowe and Lennox Lewis. You know, you're talking about a guy, John L. Sullivan, who was a bare knuckle. Uh, maybe he didn't have the hammer blow like my man Tom Molino did, but it wasn't far beyond it. And he was giving up eight inches minimum to these guys. You know, so yeah. uh, uh, it, it, it's hard to see how the computer comes up with it. Maybe it's just that, that uh, you know, uh, respect factor. I, I don't know. I, I honestly can't see how John L. Sullivan would have beat uh, any of those guys, Deontay Wilder, Ortiz, or, of course, uh, Anthony Joshua. I, I just think physically he, he would have had a hard time, Alex. 
Yeah, and I, I think Mike Tyson has said this, and I and I agree with it, that athletes don't get worse. They get better. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's so. no question. We're bigger, we're faster, we're stronger. I mean, that's the sad truth. I mean, I love the history of the sport. I love all the old-time fighters. I mean, people are probably saying, who's this guy sounding like Billy C? But the truth of the matter is, is we are bigger and stronger. And that's what makes it so frustrating when you see guys that are so much bigger, better, and everything. Eh, I don't want to fight that guy. He's too tough. You know, it's like, wow. What? what are you talking about? You know, but uh, the the tough guy is saying that. But uh, anyway, great job as usual, Alex. Uh, John L. Sullivan, former world heavyweight champion, lost his title to James Colbert, never fought again, uh, was inducted into the International Hall of Fame in 1990, had a career record gloved era, uh, 38 wins, 32 coming by knockout. That gave him a 78% knockout ratio, uh, one loss in which he was stopped, and that was the Corbett fight. And he also had a draw uh, against uh, Patsy uh, Cardiff uh, in 1887. Uh, John L. Sullivan, our blast from the past uh, this week. And uh, Alex, uh, hopefully you can uh, stop by uh, either tomorrow or Friday. We'd love to get your uh, thoughts and predictions on the uh, Wilder-Ortiz fight. And, of course, uh, the Kovalev return. But really, on the undercard, Bivol and uh, Sullivan Barrera uh, looks to be a, a pretty competitive match. Yeah, there's a lot of good fights this weekend, and we just had uh, some good fights last weekend, so it looks like boxing, even though uh, we're almost a quarter of the way through the year, uh, or third of the way through the year, um, at, boxing's just starting to heat up. Hey, that uh, Rung Saval, uh, Rung, whatever, you know him, uh, Sor, right. Mr. Sor. So Rung Visai. Yeah, yeah, Rung Visai, right. Uh, Rung Visai is a beast to me, and uh, uh, yeah, he's I wanna, a badass. I, I, I thought I, I thought he should have been fighter of the year last year, uh, and this week I, I thought he beat Estrada. So did I. I. I mean, it's not his. You can't go by the face. No, you know? no. He, and Larry makes in that first round. He was getting welts. He just he you know his face doesn't respond the same way Estrada's does. That no. doesn't mean that's not how you win a fight. No, and and Larry made a great point about the scoring system, and at the end of the day, it really didn't wasn't indicative. And for Estrada to say, I won those last three rounds. All I could say is, yeah, it was nine before that, though. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that was one of the few things that HBO did point out that was correct the other night was that it, it is like he's a 15-round fighter in a 12-round age. Right. Well, HBO, uh, they haven't been getting too oh. many things right lately. <laughs> it's sad. And, yeah, and, they're and so different. The only thing I'll say about Andre Ward and I was never a big fan of him as a fighter, but what I do like of, about him as a commentator is when they try to tell him how great he is, he always diverts it back to the topic at hand, unlike Roy Jones Jr., who will take that those accolades and, and build on them. You know, I mean, uh, uh, it's, it's refreshing to see a guy like Andre Ward take, and they say, well, and, you know, nobody ever beat you, you know, and then he'll turn around and, well, you know, and boom, throw it back to the guy they're talking about, which... I think is important because Lampley is is losing it, and Max is getting worse. I was always sticking up for Max, but geez, he's uh, he's slipping too, my man. But uh, yeah, and even our our buddy uh, Harold Letterman, I thought sounded a little out of it. Uh, well, it seems week. it seems like uh, there's some conflict going on. Well, I disagree with Harold's score. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, geez. Max undercuts him immediately. every time. It yeah. seems right. It's happening a lot, right? 
Yeah. Oh, all the time. And yeah. and I agree with what you were saying with Larry. That whole that way to assess a guy. Uh, that who would you rather be? To me, that's just very a very childish it's, way it's, it's to immature. look at it. And you're right. That that's a that's, it's immature. And one other thing, I'm way over my break. But one other thing, which I thought was was like uh, Max went to into an area of HBO never go to this area rule. When he brought up that he replaced Larry Merchant, did you catch that? Yeah, there were a couple of times. And yeah, and and, and the thing was is, no, I, obviously, I don't compare the two. I, I wasn't a huge fan of Larry Merchant, but um, you know that that whole relationship between Larry Merchant Merchant and HBO did not end too happily, you know. Right. And uh, I was shocked that that he went and said the guy I replaced, you know, however he termed it, was basically what he said. Um, I, sitting in this seat. I mean, I mean, he said, you know, it's like, uh, damn, what you doing, man? You know? Yeah, it was but weird. It was. Yeah, you don't want to uh, piss off those uh, the the corporate bosses, I'm sure. No, and that's what it's become, and that's the saddest part. But Alex, make sure you got some time and come on uh, later in the week, brother. All right, yeah, maybe tomorrow because then I'm going to uh, Chicago this weekend. For, oh, great! You're gonna uh, see little, the little nephew's uh, third birthday, man. Jeez, they're... Uh, Speaking of time flying. Yeah, huh? You're not kidding. You're not kidding. All right, my man. We'll talk to you tomorrow. All right. Take care, Billy Sue. That's uh, Alex Papali. I'm going to take a short break, and I'm bringing uh, Rocky Senecola back. Don't go nowhere. Billy C. will be right back. Part of the Billy C. Boxing Network. Check out BillyCBoxing.com now, or feel the wrath of the mighty mustache. Oh, that hurts. Why are you doing that to my face? That's BillyCBoxing.com. Consider this your warning. Now back to Billy Billy C. Interact with the show at BillyCBoxing.com. And we're back. You're watching and listening to the Billy C. Show. Glad you could be with us. And speaking of being with us, he's back. My man, uh, Sal Rocky Senecola. Uh, Sal, I got some emails to read, so uh, we'll be looking to get some uh, interesting comments from uh, you and uh, myself. This first one's from Jesse, my man. Je- well, actually, this is the second one. Jesse says, uh, "Hey, hey, guys, I scored the uh, uh, Rung Fazal and Estrada fight a tie. A lot of rounds were close, so it could have gone either way. Yes, Rung was pressuring and throwing punches, but Estrada was counting and countering and landing some good ones. Tough fight to call. It seems that Rung." Uh, led uh, with his head a lot, and that's why Estrada was not going in uh, a lot. He mentioned that. I think the division should have a tournament because it's stacked with guys. Still think Inoue is the best one. Um, uh, I don't know. I, it was a close fight. I, I I didn't. I like Juan Francisco Estrada. I just didn't think he won the fight. Um, he says I'm not paying attention to the talk of Wilder. Uh, I want him just to fight. I agree if Luis. Ortiz comes in on weight, then he'll show up. But if he's overweight, then it might be a fix. I hope it's not a fix. Even though Ortiz is old, he still has the speed. He's got good defense, and he's got uh, patience. And he can counter. Uh, Lewis might need uh, to fight in the inside during, since Ortiz might pull up uh, a high guard. Uh, or uh, do you think he will try to keep Ortiz on the outside uh, with jabs and rights? Um he also wants to know what my thoughts on Lewis Neary against Yamanaka, Danny Roman against uh, uh, Matsum- uh, Matsumoto uh, fights. 
Uh, Neary and Yamanaka, five pounds and three pounds overweight, was stripped of his bantamweight title, so that fight uh, is uh, not going to have a title on the line. And uh, Matsumoto uh, is going to be a tough fight for Danny Roman. There's no question about it. Back to the uh, Wilder. You know, to tell you the truth, Sal, and we're going to break down and give our official predictions later in the week, but to tell you the Absolutely. truth, I, I, I think that if I'm Deontay Wilder, I have to respect Luis Ortiz, regardless of the shape that he comes in and regardless if, if people think the fight's fixed. Um, I think that uh, Deontay Wilder needs to put on a boxing display. I think he needs, Larry and I were talking about Donnie Niente's fight this past weekend and how brilliant he was breaking down his opponent. I think that's what Deontay Wilder has to try to do in this fight. I think he has to try to break down Luis Ortiz. Now, when you look at Luis Ortiz, I think that Luis Ortiz needs to get inside. He's got the arm reach advantage, believe it or not, over Deontay Wilder. But something I've been saying for a long time, you got to somebody has to work the body of Deontay and test it. Nobody's done it. And I don't think it's going to hold up. I know you and I disagree on that. But if Ortiz gets in on the inside, he's got enough hand speed, deceiving hand speed, to catch Deontay on the chin. I think this should be an inside fight for Ortiz, even though he's known for his boxing ability, and an outside fight for uh, Deontay Wilder. W what do you think? Well, first impression, I, I, I do agree with you. And I think that... Uh, you know, Deontay, I think from the onset, he's going to, after that bell rings, uh, try to just assess really quick and uh, and, and look to uh, strike from the outside a little bit, give a little bit of lateral movement, see what kind of Ortiz is in the ring uh, opposite corner, you know, see where his speed is and test him a little bit. I, I assume that, and I could see Ortiz doing the same, trying to work and get on the inside uh, where he's going to feel that that's his territory and his game against Deontay Wilder. And uh, I I do really see a good fight. And I was listening to the segments that you did with Alex and also with uh, Larry Hazard, and and I think Larry was, uh, as they say, uh, spot on. He, uh, you know, he said this is really a, a good test for Deontay, a formidable opponent, as you will. And uh, I think that uh, this is, could be a real good. Uh, coming out kind of fight for Deontay Wilder if he rises to the occasion and does what I think he's capable of doing and what he self-proclaims thinks he's capable of doing. So it could be good. And I think the, I think Ortiz, too, has a great moment, a great opportunity, because guess what? He leaves with his hand in the air, boom. Uh, he, he gets a great payday I, coming in the future with uh, Anthony Joshua. I agree. And, and all the talk about the fix, my talk included, um, doesn't make financial sense. No, you know, I don't think it's. I, I don't. I don't go with the fix. Well, I, well, I you know, when when you think about some of the other fights on Deontay Wilder's record, like Malik Scott, he only fought one other time. You know, it, it, theoretically, he cashed out, and that's the end of that. Um, but Luis Ortiz is in a position, especially if he beats Deontay Wilder. Uh, you know, I don't know what he's making for this fight, uh, and you know, assuming that he was offered to to take a nap in this fight. Um, he couldn't have possibly been offered double-digit millions, you know, uh, like he would make against AJ. So I, I or or Joseph Parker if Joseph Parker wins. So I don't. Uh, I think this is a big opportunity, and I do think that Luis Ortiz is is going into this fight with some pride. So uh, we'll get to that later in the week. Um, I, I'll squeeze in uh, one or two more emails here. If I didn't get to your email today, uh, fear not. We definitely will get to it tomorrow. 
This one's from my man Angel from Madison, Wisconsin. Hola, Senor C and Sal. He says, should I even bother doing a March Madness bracket this year? I think the real madness is the NCAA and the mess they're in. Uh, I'd like you and Sal's opinion on the on the FBI probe and the violations. It seems like the top major schools are in deep uh, into this scandal. Let's put on a commissioner's hat and pretend uh, how you would both confront this scandal. You know, as far as uh, doing a bracket, it's always fun to, to do a, a, a NCAA March Madness uh, bracket. I, I know some people that are, are more into the um, subliminary tournaments that are starting to take place now uh, for these teams to earn a spot in the uh, NCAA uh, March Madness tourn- tournament. So if you're into basketball, some of these games coming up over the next week or two are, uh, are pretty good too. Um, as far as the... Uh, uh, FBI probe. You know what my thought is about the FBI probe? I know that they've, you know, have stumbled across some stuff and the, the sexual uh, uh, allocations and, and forcing uh, ADs to step down, uh, specifically Michigan State, all that stuff. Um, what the hell is the FBI listening to? Why are they getting involved in, in college uh, sports anyway? I mean, uh, doesn't our FBI have more important things to do than, than to police uh, whether you know college teams are, are following the recruitment rules or, or anything else, I mean, if it becomes a situation where the the country is in it, is is that in danger? I I, I see it, but you know, I, people got to remember that these probes started by accident, you know, and um, you know led to uh, you know the firing of of you know top uh, uh, big name coaches. Um, I don't know. What's your thoughts, Sal? I think they I think they have bigger fish to fry, but that's my opinion. Well, you know, I, I, I'm not one to discuss it because I really do not know how the whole mechanics and all that go about. I know that, uh, you know, they're 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 using a lot of their force right now or they have been uh, and also using it as an excuse for wasting time with the. Uh, with the Russia probe, with the president, and the election fix, and all that stuff, and then uh, you got to shoot up a, in, in a in a high school, which is devastating to the country and to people that lost their lives and their families, and and uh, they're saying, well, that's because we weren't paying attention because it wasn't. I don't know. I can't talk about it because I do not know, and I wish that uh, you know it would be on a priority level that uh, we have to really pay attention to on the safety of our citizens of the United States of America. That's where the focus should be. I agree. I agree. Um, some listen, other probe or some I, other uh, NCAA or some other investigative force uh, fool around with that kind of stuff. Exactly. Um, listen, I, I have uh, three more emails that we'll get to tomorrow. So uh, my man uh, uh, Jeffrey and, and Luke and uh, Morgan, uh, fear not. I got all your emails, and we will get to them uh, on, uh, on tomorrow's show. Uh, also coming up uh, later in the week. Uh, we will be uh, giving our uh, breakdowns and full predictions uh, of the Deontay Wilder, uh, Luis Ortiz fight. Uh, we also have uh, the Kovalev uh, fight, that uh, his return, uh, Dimitri Bivol and Sullivan Barrera. And uh, flying under the radar, the rematch between Andre Durrell and Jose Yulzagai, um, a fight that uh, I really don't care to see any of the Durrell brothers uh uh, in the ring again, if you remember, this was uh, the guy's, uh, Darrell's uncle went over and sucker punched this guy after the fight, the <laughs> fighter. I mean, it's just terrible. Oh, uh, man. But, uh, 
But in any event, that's what we got on tap for later in the week. Uh, but uh, but listen, let me tell you guys this. Make sure. <laughs> look at you. Sal, Sal's doing a, a, an impression of me on his camera. No, um, no, I, I'm not. I, you're, I, I you're mimicking. You're mimicking. Before we go. You're, what's that? I would like to say something before we go. Then if say we could, it. If say I could. it. Hurry up. Come on, right, we're thank, out of time. Thank you very much. Okay, listen, I just want to thank everybody for the area here, uh, 1440 WGIG. Billy C., do you know how many people daily now come up to me and say they were either driving to an airport, they were hopping to the shower, they were doing something on a Sunday morning, and all of a sudden they heard you and I, and they love the show. Well, so I want to thank again Scott Reifen for the opportunity. And people are coming up to me every day now saying, wow, they really look forward to our show. So... I thank you for uh, for uh, allowing that to happen. Well, I tell you the truth, Scott should put us on every day. That's all. You know, as a matter of fact, we should do it live from his studio. How about that? You know, so there you uh, go again. We should Bill do Bill. that for a week. But uh, anyway, hey, boys and girls, make sure you tune in tomorrow morning, same bat time, same bat channel. Until then, I'll leave you with this. Ciao, baby. Da-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na